Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. This is UXK. 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 I'm your host, Lee Allen Arredondo. Hello and welcome to UX Cake. This week we are talking about designing the impossible with Dr. Nellie Ben Hayoun. She's the founder and experienced designer of Nellie Ben Hayoun Studios or NBH Studios in London. NBH Studios creates large scale extreme experiences like being an astronaut or erupting volcanoes or recreating natural disasters for organizations as diverse as NASA, the European Space Agency, Google, Mattel, Nike, Lego, the list goes on. So designing impossible things is just part of every day for Nellie and her teams. And even though it sounds kind of wonderful and magical, maybe the end result is magical, but the process is what she calls brutal. And for her, that's actually a critical aspect of anything that is good design, that there has to be contention or friction in creating something meaningful. And that's what you get from a plurality of thinking through a multidisciplinary team. Besides creating magnificent experiences at NBH Studios, Nellie has also founded the University of the Underground in London. She's created an international space orchestra, recently completed a feature film about political theorist Hannah Arendt. She is currently a visiting professor at the Royal College of Art, and that's just a few of the things that she is up to. And next, she'll be working on becoming a mermaid. Nellie, I want to thank you so much for joining me on UX Cake. My listeners are super excited to hear your upcoming talk at Interaction 19, and I'm very excited to talk to you. Well, I'm very excited to talk to you too, Lee. Um, you know, I'm also really excited to come to visit Seattle and visit specifically all of the basement and all of the underground of Seattle. <laughs> uh, but also, like, I'm absolutely eager to see this gum wall. I mean, I cannot believe that you have a wall which is um, literally filled up with chewing gum. <laughs> I think that's quite fascinating to me. Um, you know, and I just never been to Seattle. So, um, you know, Lee, if you, you and your auditor can take me in a round trip in Seattle, I would love that. I just think this place sounds, by the look of it, a place I'm going to absolutely love. So, uh, you know, I'm really excited about coming and visiting, for sure. Yeah, it's a beautiful place. I was just looking outside my window at the Olympics, and they're covered with snow, and the city is surrounded by mountains. It's really beautiful. It'll be really nice in February, too. I can't promise dry weather <laughs> like it is today, sunny. You know, I was actually so excited about what I read online. I actually thought, you know, why not move to Seattle and actually set up the University of the Underground in Seattle? And then I realized Seattle is probably the most, like, rainy city in the world. And then I thought, okay, can I live with that, you know, and turn into a mermaid? Mm -hmm. Anyway, I mean, I'm going completely off topic, but I'm also listening to this Nick Cave song, which is called Mermaid, which I will recommend to all of your listeners. It's a beautiful song. Oh. So I was just thinking about becoming a mermaid in Seattle, <laughs> which I guess is probably linked to interaction 19 in some extent because interaction 19 this year is very much focused on storytelling and how to tell stories through you know um, information design interaction design and so forth and so you know to tell stories i think is something that i always have been fascinated by so 
Yeah. Excellent. I'm going to hope to come back around to that. You mean becoming a mermaid? <laughs> <laughs> sure. Okay. Let's see how we can fit that in at the end. <laughs> so, Nelly, your upcoming keynote at Interaction 19 is about designing the impossible. And I want to talk a little bit about that. Your team creates very big, extreme, multi-dimensional, multi-platform experiences. And just to set the context for this audience who might not be familiar with some of those experiences. Can you tell me about a recent impossible experience your team has created? Yeah. So, I mean, I guess, you know, when I go in a party and I'm being asked what I do, I say I design experiences. And then usually people understand that I design expenses because of my very strong French accent instead of experiences. <laughs> so then I usually have to really point out its experiences, you know, and then people would tell me, oh, so you do fashion design. I would be like, no, I, um, you know, I would say then that I, uh, you know, me and my team are usually trying to figure out ways for you to access a sublime. Uh, and that would mean things like giving you the experience of a rocket lift off inside your living room while a volcano is erupting in your lounge and you can experience sonic booms while you're inside your bathtub while dark energy is being produced inside your kitchen sink. I mean, that is exactly the kind of world that we inhabit, which is also why, you know, the studio that I run, the Nibelium Studios, is being called to be a Willy Wonka. Uh, studio because very much we live in this kind of like Charlie and the chocolate factory kind of like world where, you know, we don't believe that uh, because uh, rational mind would tell us that you cannot access or make dark energy in your kitchen thing, then you shouldn't try even to do such experiences. Now, I think what is really, really important to say is that we don't just live in the world of fantasy and surrealism. Uh, and when I say that we give you the rocket lift off, and when I say experience, or when I say that we are going to generate dark energy in our kitchen sink, we actually build also, you know, multidisciplinary team to actually make that happen. And that's where, to me, this whole experiential aspect is, you know, is not just a kind of a story. It's not just a, a kind of an idea or, you know, it's actually also about making it happen for real. And so that means working with an astronaut that has experienced the rocket liftoff and actually developing uh, that chair with him so that we can build an experience which is as close as it can be to reality. And that means actually developing dark energy in your kitchen sink with a physicist from the Large Hadron Collider in Geneva or MIT in uh, the university working with them, with the scientists there so that we can actually build uh, a picometer of dark energy, let's say, inside your kitchen sink. So you can actually be face to face to the unknown and eat your pancake while you have a bit of 95% uh, of what makes the universe being created inside your kitchen sink. That's the kind of work that we do, basically. And you're putting together these teams from very different backgrounds. I'm curious, what kind of a mindset does a person need to have to approach an impossible problem in order to make it possible? What is it that you're looking for in the people that you work with? I guess I'm looking for people who are extremely passionate as well, as much as I might be about trying to figure out ways to convey complex ideas and complex structures and complex politics to members of the public. So I'm extremely passionate by that. You know, that really is my mission, actually revealing power structures in quite complex issues and so forth and actually make that clear to members of the public so they can then take informed decision as to which you know dream they want to kind of be a part of or mission they want to be a part of. 
but I'd say to you that the same way that I'm really extremely passionate about that and about trying to figure out different methods to achieve this, then I'm expecting my collaborator to be extremely passionate about the science that they might develop or about the politics they might develop or about you know, the kind of the ideas that they represent and so forth. And for us to actually have this really intense discussion, uh, which are not smooth, you know, I mean, there is this kind of belief which probably come out of, you know, this kind of like what I call mushy-moshy kind of like world in which we inhabit with like a conference such as TED, for example, where you always look that, uh, you know, collaboration between disciplines are smooth and we all love each other and art and science, like the perfect combination of the worlds. I don't think that when there is a correlation of the worlds, you come up with any good work. I think actually, if you really want to start to develop something which is going to be innovative, then you need to be prepared to actually be told that whatever you think is probably not relevant to the person in front of you. Uh, and so to be able to, you know, have that kind of conversation, which are actually honest and sometimes quite brutal, and to start from that perspective and then to build it up from there, from that kind of very raw energy, I think is like the way that we'll end on project. And, you know, for most of them, the whole process is as explosive as the actual end result. That's really interesting. I'd love to explore this a little bit more. Talking about the process of going through designing the impossible and you say that it can be painful and brutal. And I guess maybe the view would be, oh, you're putting together this team and everyone is saying, yes, of course, we can do the impossible. But do you find that you're working with people and they're saying, no, this is something that's just not possible? And then how do you get past that? Oh, yeah. I mean, I guess, you know, one of my massive partner in crime, and I just finished a, a feature of a lens film, actually, about her, uh, is called Anna Arendt. And Anna Arendt was a political philosopher I mean, terrorist, really, uh, that uh, died in 1975. You know, she was teaching as a new school in New York for a long time. And she did escape, uh, you know, the, the Second World War and the Nazi, um, you know, at the time, because she was a Jew in, um, in Germany at the time. But anyway, what she, what she says is like, to some extent, actions for her means that you have to build up something new. And in that context of building something new, uh, and that's what she means by activism in a way for her, is everything that is actually developing something new. Uh, you have to be prepared to some extent to face multiple different opinions. And all of these different opinions are what makes uh, a plurality of thinking happen. And that's what is beautiful about it. But it also means that whenever you want to think as a producer of a certain project, then it just means that sometimes this plurality of thinking just doesn't support the vision of making a, a set project happen. And so, you know, I'd say to you that the more I develop the work and the more I've been, you know, doing this uh, work, so it's made now 10 years that the studio is in existence, right? The more I learned that actually a lot of it and a lot of my practice as a designer of experience is actually about politics. And so it's not without reason that I read and I'm very much active in like this political theory, um, you know, uh, field, because I actually truly believe that if you want to design any experience that to some extent is going to be about trying to 
build new expanse, build new territory, rethink the way that institutions have been functioning for the past hundred years, uh, you know, challenge people in their uh, work or into the way that they envision, you know, they envision their labor and the way they've done things for like the past five, you know, or 10 years, then it is going to be, um, you know, it is going to be going down to politics and actually how you're going to be handling uh, the kind of the reaction that are going to come with that. Uh, and so, yes, to build this project just means that uh, you have to exist within that context of politics. And also it just means as well that you have to be extremely, extremely persistent. Uh, and that is something that, you know, I can try and define and try to bring into rational terms. But I think to be, you know, to be frank to you, like I still don't know. Um, you know, and I'm just coming out of a very long day where I've been just literally being told no all along uh, for something quite actually problematic for all of us. Um, but the bottom line is what I'd say to you, it's like, yeah, this persistence is um, something that, you know, I call the hammering technique, you know, for me, a no is not a no until I turn it into a yes. And to some extent, I just think that as an individual, I'm also someone who to some extent, um, will not take any no for granted and uh, actually will always go and strive under extremely challenging situations. And so, you know, the more people try to kill a project, the more, to some extent, the cockroach in me will, you know, exist and move fast. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. I understand the persistence is something that a lot of folks who are new to the realm of UX in particular, but design in general, I think are somewhat surprised at how much grit and determination and persistence are needed, as well as storytelling, like you talked about before, that's also super helpful to get anywhere to see your vision, or even a part of your vision sometimes. A bit of a segue. In the description about your upcoming talk for Interaction 19, <laughs> one thing in particular that really struck me, you said, you will demonstrate how the human condition can prevail over technology. And I wanted to talk to you about this just a little bit, because for UX practitioners, we are generally trying to leverage technology to better the human condition. We're using technology to benefit humans. So I wanted to understand what you mean specifically when you're talking about that, the human condition prevailing over technology? Well, again, it's coming back to Anna Arendt, right? And as a political theorist, uh, she wrote this book called The Human Condition, which basically is defining labor in the terms of homo faber and animal labyrinths. And in a way, and I'm going to explain what these terms mean, but uh, in a way, when, she, when Anna Arendt wrote The Human Condition, she was referring to the dead, like the, the the atomic bomb and basically the reaction that Oppenheimer got after the atomic bomb, you know, impacting Nagasaki and Hiroshima. And there is this really famous interview where you see uh, Oppenheimer uh, telling, um, re repeating the kind of the mantra of some Indian story. I can't remember exactly the detail, but basically she started uh, um, a book by. Uh, talking about Sputnik and then going into Oppenheimer and kind of defining that to some extent, she believed that humanity would disappear uh, because basically we, the way that we have set up labor and the way that we have set up critical thinking within the context of labor is going to mean that we, 
you know, the people who make just make and the people who think and develop politics just do that. And there is no kind of correlation between these two body and these two way of functioning. And she takes the example, of course, of Oppenheimer, who has been sublimed by the technological tool to the point that when the atomic bomb was there, while he was leading the uh, Manhattan project all along and building up this uh, atomic bomb, you know, he never actually thought that this would be used to destroy life. And this is quite, I mean, and that's, to me, is really, you know, it's really interesting, but it's also like coming back to our point and to an RN point, it's like, how can we try and figure out a way so that actually the people who make are also people who are developing thinking processes and are actually being uh, given platform to critically reflect on the technological tools that they are developing. And I think when you look at any form of scientific institutions that still are in existence today, and of course I know NASA quite well because I've been working quite actively within the space agencies uh, or the United Nations, then you start to realize that this specific institution that I've been going on for, you know, a, quite a long time, like nearly 100 years, uh, not quite yet, but, you know, soon, uh, you, you start to realize that they, um, you know, they, they don't have spaces for critical thought to take place. They don't have platform for these things to take place. And so you might argue that maybe what I do is not going to help in any way in that kind of like massive scale, I'd say, issue or problem. But, and also music and experiences might not be the answer to the development of critical platform within the context of these institutions. Uh, you know, if you think about a project that the International Space Orchestra, for example, which is an orchestra at NASA, where you have NASA scientists reenacting everything that went wrong in the space program, which is a, a, an orchestra that I set up back in 2012 and is still in existence at NASA, then you might argue and you might say to me, well, Nelly, that's not going to help in any way the way that the agency might or might not send radar and, you know, military, um, you know, um, kind of station in outer space. Yes, you're right, I will say to you, but then at the same time, you know, why not start there? Why not start by actually building a platform that will allow for these critical thoughts to take place through the use of music? Because if you're playing the dobro and I'm playing the trumpet and you're the head of NASA and I'm just a new engineer that just started, it's actually much more easier to discuss real topic about, you know, outer space colonization and what that might mean about going to Mars and what that might mean and so forth. So, yeah, that's where I sit with that, and that's what my um, contribution, at least to interaction design, probably will be about. But I never know because I never actually, you know, finish my talks until I'm actually there. Uh-huh. <laughs> and maybe you don't stick to the script necessarily either. I never, <laughs> I actually hate, I will hate that. Uh-huh. And so I think I... Um, you know, I, I obviously, I, my work is not going to change overnight, right? Like, I mean, it's been going on for quite a while. So then, of course, I can speak about that. But the way I will speak about it will very much depend on the audience again. And because I'm going, to, I'm going to Seattle for four days and I'm closing the conference, right? Then that will mean that I will have had the time to actually know um, a bit more about the audience that is going to be inside the uh, the conference, and that will mean that I will be able to do a talk according to the kind of reaction that they will have had, or in terms of like you know the kind of the the talks of the other speakers as well, and seeing what kind of topic have been covered, and so trying to figure out what would be the best action 
or call for action that I can give to the audience who is there and specifically this audience of, you know, uh, interaction designer and UX uh, designer, basically. So an experience designer. So, yeah. Yeah, that's fantastic. Just to kind of wrap that back up, talking about the human condition prevailing over technology, when you talk about creating a platform for critical thought, it sounds like a lot of conversations that I have been seeing over the last couple of years where people are raising these issues and this flags about we need to be having conversations about the ethics of design and of technology, and not just sort of letting technology happen, but thinking about it before it's even put into place, but certainly talking about what is happening around us and in an ethical sort of way. Is that kind of what you are talking about, the ethics of technology? Uh, I would be careful with this concept of ethics, specifically at this point in time uh, in history and um I think ethics right now, the way that they are being understood by members of the public or the way that uh, media kind of like broadcast it, are, it's extremely problematic because, you know, um, we are now in a society that um, to some extent is tempted again by authoritarian regimes, right? And I think what's happening with that is like this kind of belief that an ideology can prevail over plurality of thoughts is um, is something that to me is also coming back with that notion of what ethics uh, means. And I don't think that we at this point in time in history, at least with this specific generation, actually understand what ethics means. And if we do speak about ethics, most of the time it's actually talking about politically correct. What is politically correct to say? What is politically correct to follow? And, you know, how can I look good on my social media or how can I look uh, that I'm like following the right ideology or not? And then I'm going to follow up with an hashtag and then, oh, I belong to that movement or I belong to that movement without having any form of critical reflection as to actually, you know, is this person in front of me really a monster? And if I believe that this person is really in front of me a monster, then why is it that I cannot even converse and have a conversation with it? But I think what we are currently seeing in our society is actually this kind of like profound states of loneliness, right? Where people are just kind of setting up into their own ways and their own ideologies and their own kind of what is ethically correct to do, what is ethically not correct to do, how am I going to be perceived by my peers as opposed to actually having like a proper in-depth conversation, a critical reflection on that. And I think when it comes to design and the role of design in that specific debate, I think we also have to remember that design is an extremely young discipline uh, that compared to the arts or compared to architecture, let's say, uh, is only about 40, 45 years old, really. Uh, you know, design as a field was actually coined and being taught in school only in 1960s and recognized, at least in the UK government, as being, um, you know, a discipline as per design. And before that, it was called combined craft. And it was only being to, taught in places like the Bauhaus and, and so forth. So I think design, in a way, is a, it's a brilliant discipline because it means that because it's just that young, it just means that it can get informed by so many other disciplines, such as sociology, such as philosophy, such as politics, such as, you know, the arts, architecture, that science that have been going on for way, way more than what design has. And so to some extent, uh, I don't know if um, we can 
you know, I don't know if designers are equipped per se to actually have the kind of the, you know, I would say the backlog of experience that other disciplines have. But what they have, because of their, the fact that it's such a young uh, discipline, they have that possibility to, to some extent, exist in between all of this and exist to perhaps develop reaction towards the way that maybe sociology as a system or as a form of thinking has been developed, politics has been developed since, uh, you know. So we are able to be actually really, you know, to build up a lot of reaction to the way that things have been done because we are so much younger. So we don't have that kind of like heritage that, and perhaps, you know, talking back to ethics, we don't have this kind of like, a, you know, ethical burden that come with the field to some extent. And, you know, and also when you look at academia and design as an academic form, like, you know, it's very new that we have PhD in design. It's completely new. Nobody, like, you can go in any academic institution and they will tell you, oh, we have PhD in design. But really, nobody really knows how to assess designers and practitioners. Like, it's a very complex issue, you know. On which basis do you uh, agree that a designer is actually developing a practice that is academically thorough or in terms of research is going to be new knowledge? Like, what is it if... You know, if it's not writing, if it's about a practice, if it's about a system of thinking, then how do you assess that? Uh, so, so to kind of like re, uh, to kind of give you an answer about um, ethics and where design can play a role, I think to me where design can play a role is by looking at actually histories and figuring out a way that uh, as designer we are able to unravel histories for members of the public and actually act as, uh, to some extent, what sociology used to do uh, back in the days, which is act as a mythologist. So be able to reveal power structures that exist in the world today. That, to me, is the kind of the ultimate uh, goal that I see for designers to develop, is like, if you can find a way and means to use design thinking, system thinking, oops, and so forth, in a manner that you can reveal power structure so that members of the public can take informed decision as to which politics they are going to follow or which, um, you know, uh, which kind of like different, uh, different thought process they might kind of like want to find themselves being associated with, uh, then I think we, you know, we are getting into a certain place. And that's, I mean, and I like personally, I'm like very much focused on that mission. Like I really want to understand, you know, when we say to me that there is a chain of command that is in place if an asteroid was to strike, let's say, then I actually want to meet every single person that is a part of that chain of command. And I want to be able to actually showcase each of these people to members of the public so they can understand actually how decisions are being made. And I think too much nowadays, we just like don't uh, show that chain of command and don't take the time to reveal all of the different level of power structures and all of the different meanings because, you know, that's, that's not a shortcut, right? That the, it's not something that you can actually recap in five minutes. It takes time and it takes a lot of people. And so if you really want to understand all of that chain of command, then we have to start developing. And for me, you know, the way to do that is to use experiences, music, film, design, to kind of digest all of that chain of command and actually be able to showcase some of the different meanings along the way and how they evolve along the way. This is all part of critical thinking. And I think that's important 
piece of what we need to be doing and what you're talking about. We didn't get a lot of time to talk about process. The majority of my audience are practitioners in user experience, designers and researchers, managers, directors, developers, PMs. So people who have to create solutions to problems that are sometimes very complex. And at some point in the process, what we're trying to solve for can feel impossible, even if it's not a volcano erupting in a living room or, you know, a meteor hitting the earth. We have many issues and problems we're designing for. And I'd love to hear from you quickly what we could learn from your process to adapt to our own work for innovation? Well, I guess the first thing would be to actually not start by saying I'm going to solve a problem, but by actually starting to say, okay, what are the questions that need to be asked? And I think too often we just like actually go and jump into like, okay, so here we have an issue with climate change. So I'm going to solve climate change. I mean, to be frank to you, like whoever starts with such a massive statement like this is not going to go anywhere. Or whatever they would do, they would probably do a TED talk. And then that will be, um, you know, a 10 minutes kind of like bullet points, take away, uh, whatever. But then nothing will have been achieved. And actually a real practitioner to me will never start by saying like, I'm going to change the world. Like he never starts like that. Uh, and I think, you know, too often whenever we have like issues, we just like jump into conclusion as opposed to really, really digging what are the different actors in play, what are the different research questions that need to be asked. Uh, you know, if you think about the new technologies that like, for example, synthetic biology and the development of like, um, so synthetic biology being, you know, the idea that you can uh, twist the DNA of a bacteria to pretty much develop any form of new living or to actually make leather, um, you know, being produced by bacteria, let's say, uh, and other kind of, and that's a new technology, right, that is being developed at, uh, at this point in time. And so, you know, this is where designers have a key role to play in terms of like, you know, figuring out how are we going to design the living now that we are going to have the possibility to do that. But before we go and we do that, what are the questions that we should ask ourselves? Like, you know, uh, yeah, you're right. Maybe there is definitely a question about ethics, but there is also questions about actually what in this world, the way that is being established, do we need to actually address and change, first of all, uh, in the context of like, you know, climate, in the context of, and start to really ask this question from an, you know, economical, sociological, political aspect, and really, really laying out all of these questions. So have a more, much more of a problem finding approach than a problem solving one, because a problem solving one will definitely come together and in end with actually defining what the problems are. So for me, the, the starting point is there. So defining well what the problems are, and then slowly and surely starting to develop like series of experiments, series documenting the experiments, uh, and then of course reiteration again and again and again and again, until you uh, can actually start to put the project into the world. And then again, testing it again and then being able to actually accept that uh, actually some of the options that you might have put into this world are probably going to fail. Uh, and so, you know, UX designer and user, you know, user experience the way that 
you know, it's developed and the way it's part of any company, of course, there is like um, budget constraint and there is, you know, you cannot really put out there like a user experience that is going to fail. But then at the same time, I'd say to you that if you're trying to resolve a problem, then, you know, you're going to have to go through multiple iteration of failures and problems and issues and so forth. So for me, it's about like, yeah, being first starting from the problem aspect uh, second of all, being able to reiterate again and again and again and again, and then being sure that if failure starts to hit your way, then you're able to actually like come up with a plan B, a plan C, a plan D, a plan E, and so forth. And so being able to actually always have five plans in place, because you should never just assume that one solution is going to be the one that rules. Yeah, I know that we have to wrap this up. And so I just wanted to find out how you would approach the problem, the impossible problem of becoming a mermaid. <laughs> uh, well, I'm only starting to think about that one. Okay, It's probably going to take me a while as to how I'm going to resolve this one. But then, you know, it's funny because this morning, actually, so I'm listening to this song, the Nikkei song, and then you're telling me about, uh, well, you know, we were talking about the rain in uh, Seattle. And then it turns out that I was listening to this podcast this morning about mermaid and mermaid sport. And, you know, in France, it's so underrated, apparently. Like the French radio was saying that nobody really see the, um, you know, incredible uh, aspects, like sports aspect of being a mermaid. <laughs> the U.S., you have a lot of sports related to becoming a mermaid. Like it's actually a sport, you know, a registered sport to try and become a mermaid. I guess I'm going to probably start by looking at this issue from the perspective of like inviting around uh, at the bar. I will invite at the bar a synthetic biologist, so someone that can work on DNA and tell me about uh, DNA and how they function. I will invite at the bar as well someone from the Natural History Museum who is going to be able to tell me the evolution of species and kind of be able to tell me about Darwin and how Darwin kind of came up with this theory of, uh, you know, the human evolution and perhaps where is there like maybe a gap where mermaids could kind of exist. And I will also invite someone who can, probably a geographer, who can tell me in the world, where should I go to try and find some species that could be related somehow to mermaids, uh, you know, in this world. And then finally, I think I will probably invite on that uh, um, who else will I invite? Probably a musician as well, because I think you always need good music uh, to be able to be inspired along the way for a journey like this. And all of that together, I think I would be covered to maybe not find a solution, but at least to start establishing what the problem is and why is it that I'm not a mermaid. <laughs> yeah. Don't forget the videographer so the rest of us can see this process because I think it sounds yes. fascinating. <laughs> yes. And by the way, talking about videographer, you can all come and see the new movie, the I'm Not a Monster new movie that we'll be releasing next year. We don't know yet when. We are still waiting and we are we have all the finger crossed. I really, really hope that we can make it to South by Southwest. We will not know probably until end of January. I guess I will know when I come to Seattle whether or not the film has made it to South by Southwest or not. If he has not made it to South by Southwest, I guess I will be probably trying to figure out a solution as to what I'm going to do next with that film and when and how I'm going to release it. <laughs> 
Yes, because you don't take no for an answer, which is fantastic. (laughs) (laughs) I'm so, so grateful for your time today. I know you're very busy. And so I just want to thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure to speak with you, Nellie. Thank you so much, Lee. And, uh, you know, please thank you so much as well for your time. And uh, yeah, don't worry about busy because I always say to everyone, like everybody in the world is busy. I mean, that's uh, (laughs) a matter of fact, like we are all busy with our lives and trying to figure out how to maintain them. So, (laughs) Well, thank you. (laughs) Thank you so much. Well, that was a fascinating conversation. And it was fun to listen to it a couple times through to see what I missed the first time. So many ideas. I should also mention that there is a transcript of this interview on the episode page on our site at uxcake.co. So just in case you didn't get something the first time, you can go read the transcript. I have to admit that I feel a little silly admitting this, but I'm going to tell you, I thought that she said that Hannah Arendt was a political terrorist until I read the transcript. Political theorist actually makes a lot more sense. So I felt a little silly. You can see Nellie's keynote live at Interaction 19. Get more info about that at interaction19.ixda.org. To keep up with all the fascinating things that Nellie is up to, follow We Are NBH Studios on Twitter. You can also follow Nellie at Nellie Ben Hyun on Twitter. If you are enjoying UX Cake, please rate and review in Apple Podcasts or iTunes. That really does help our community grow. Also, share it with your friends and colleagues. You can connect with UX Cake on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and our website at uxcake.co. And be sure to subscribe so you don't miss a bite.